0: There's evidence that as far back as the 10th century, Chinese medical practitioners were using inoculation to prevent smallpox and variolation for the same as early as the 15th century. For reference, inoculation generally refers to any attempt at stimulating a person's immune system so that they develop antibodies against a particular disease, while variolation is a more specific type of inoculation in which bits of diseased tissue or fluid are utilized to ensure that said person receives an immune system boosting dose. Spending some time with an infected person In the hope of not getting infected, but still developing some antibodies, then, is a type of rudimentary inoculation, while scratching a person's skin and rubbing ground-up smallpox scabs from an infected patient or recently deceased victim is a type of variolation. Since Western medicine became the default platform for medical research and experimentation over the course of the past 500 years or so, in part because it also produced the most widely distributed and published scientific culture, we only have rough knowledge of these earlier practices that were seemingly common in many parts of the Asian world. In particular, China was pretty advanced in this regard, it would seem. But so were Indian subcontinent-based cultures, based on reports from the East India Company's medical professionals who sent the Royal Society back in London notes about local practices that seemed effective, or at the very least, more effective than the often mysticism and miasma-based practices even very learned people around Europe were practicing at the time. That said, an English surgeon and apothecary, which is sort of like a pharmacist who blends his own medicinal concoctions, named Edward Jenner, heard that folks working in the dairy industry, milking cows and such, tended to have very smooth skin, which was unusual in an age and in a place where a great many people were in some way disfigured by smallpox if they weren't killed by it at some point in their lives. He theorized that because these milkmaids would often come down with a less potent pox disease called cowpox, they were perhaps immune, or at least more immune, to the substantially worse smallpox. And he tested this theory in a truly ethically malignant, by today's standards, way. He took pus from a milkmaid's cowpox-derived sore and rubbed it into scratches made on an eight-year-old boy's skin before exposing him to smallpox-laden substances. Something that, if his theory was incorrect, would be likely to harm or kill the boy, and or significantly disfigure him. But because cowpox and smallpox were similar, thankfully, the boy's immune system had developed enough of a resistance to the more potent disease that he did just fine. He didn't catch it. Thus, though still not knowing for sure why it worked, but theorizing that the body was able to repel diseases after being exposed to less potent versions of them, Jenner began to distribute vials of cowpox-infected tissues and fluids so that other people could be infected, granting this potentially life-saving immunity around England. Though a rough version of the same product, basically just finding someone with cowpox and convincing them to share pus from their blisters with their family and neighbors seemed to work just as well, and remained a widely practiced approach for generations, even as more formalized variations of this vaccine method became available. This type of vaccine, which is now considered to be part of the first generation of vaccines, was made up of living, weakened, or dead virus materials. In some cases, the actual virus they hoped to protect against, and in some cases near matches that allowed the body to prepare itself for roughly the right type of disease, providing an additional layer of protection when exposed to the full brunt of the disease or the actual disease they wished to protect against. Not all near matches were as effective as cowpox, but most were effective enough to be worth the cringe factor of rubbing someone else's pus into an open wound on your arm. The second generation of vaccines emerged alongside a wider spread acceptance of germ theory, the, at the time, unproven and widely disbelieved idea that diseases and other conditions are caused by, or the consequence of, the existence of microscopic life, what we today know as viruses, bacteria, and so on. At the time, though, perhaps especially in the publishing-happy European medical community, miasmas bad air, basically, were thought to be the cause of everything from chlamydia to smallpox to psychological conditions. Worth noting here is that this was a fairly widespread conception. Many Chinese medical practitioners believed the same, even as they often accidentally stumbled upon practices that worked. And brilliant minds of this and prior generations, including Galen, the anatomist who defined much of Western medicine for hundreds of years leading up to this moment, thought it was an obvious and well-supported macro-disease theory. It was one of the European proponents of germ theory, though. A biologist-turned-microbiologist named Louis Pasteur, who introduced the second generation of vaccines to the world in the shape of his 1880 cholera vaccine, which he followed with a vaccine for rabies in 1885. These second-generation offerings were examples of what are today called subunit vaccines, which are distinct from those developed previously, in that they're made up of protein antigens, or other viral components, which essentially means they consist of pieces of a pathogen, but not the whole thing. So in practice, you might take a virus, break it into pieces, find the chunk that human immune systems respond to when they're building immunities to that virus, and only give that part to people so that they're less likely to suffer the consequences of exposure to the whole virus. Patients' immune systems didn't know the difference between the pieces and the whole thing, but the outcomes were often vastly different. The second generation of vaccines were often far safer than their first generation kin. Over the course of the next 140 years or so, vaccines have come a long way, with most of them based on that same second generation concept of breaking dangerous things apart, taking the protein pieces that allow us to build immunities, and applying those to people in the safest way possible. As a result of this work, we today have vaccines for yellow fever, typhus, polio, measles and mumps, pneumonia, meningitis, hepatitis A, and rotavirus, among many, many others. Some for very niche diseases, but some for diseases that plagued generations of human beings until the vaccines for them came along. Many estimates place the developers of some of these vaccines in the tiny club of historical figures who have saved over a million lives, and some of them have saved many times that, Jenner and Pasteur among them. What I'd like to talk about today, though, is third-generation vaccines. The technologies that are allowing us to make entirely new vaccine types, at times very rapidly, and supplementary technologies that are making these vaccines possible and practical. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. Since the early days of vaccine usage, the field has branched out to include multiple core and sub-approaches to achieving essentially the same outcome, making the recipient of the vaccine immune or partially immune to some kind of pathogen. Alongside the subunit type that I mentioned in the intro, which, if you remember, is a vaccine composed of pathogen components, usually proteins, rather than the whole pathogen, as is the case with the whole agent vaccines, as they're called, which came before, and which were composed of an entire pathogen, either the one you're trying to protect against or a similar one, now there are variations of heterotypic vaccines, which is what that original exposure to cowpox in order to prevent smallpox was, conjugate vaccines which involve taking the outer coatings from bacteria and attaching those to proteins so the immune system learns to attack things with that type of outer coating whatever they contain inside attenuated vaccines which are basically reduced potency versions of the pathogen you're trying to develop an immunity to this is the case with the measles mumps and rubella vaccines and toxoid vaccines, which involve utilizing the toxin that causes a person to fall ill, rather than priming the immune system against the pathogen that delivers or causes that toxicity. The variety of different approaches in this field has led to the occasional health issue, though these are few and far between, were mostly the consequence of outdated and no longer used medical practices or ingredients, and have nothing to do with the common anti-vaccine rhetoric you'll sometimes hear or see on social media, which is primarily based on either ignorance about the field or predicated on research that was falsified by a former scientist who lost his license as a result of that data falsification that he committed. There are still, and likely always will be, periodic issues with all types of medication and treatment, for some groups and for some individuals, But we've gotten a lot better at noting such adverse reactions during the preliminary stages of testing, vaccines, and medications over the years. And modern approaches to making drugs of all kinds are a lot less prone to major flubs due to the at times quite burdensome regulations that most major economies apply to pharmaceuticals in general. As a result of these sorts of systemic regulatory changes to the medical field, Few modern vaccines have any side effects more significant than minor aches and maybe some minor flu-like symptoms. Most don't even cause those in most people, though. At the moment, the medical field is in the midst of testing and trialing a new generation of vaccine, in some cases more effective versions of older ones, and in some cases vaccines for pathogens that have been unaddressable by previous methods for whatever reason recombinant vector vaccines, for instance, take pieces of one microorganism and pieces of another and combine them in such a way that the new whole can trigger immunity, even against Ebola. And a vaccine for doing exactly that took half a decade to develop, and that was at an expedited rate. But it would have been very difficult, if not impossible, to stimulate this type of immunity in people against this particular pathogen using any other known method. There's another new type of currently still experimental vaccine that I'll be focusing on today though, and it's at the center of the article that I'd like to start from, which comes from the Wall Street Journal and is entitled, Moderna and Pfizer are reinventing vaccines, starting with COVID. As of the day I'm recording this, in late November 2020, there is a coronavirus-catalyzed pandemic ongoing worldwide. And though some places are better off than others, and a bare few have managed to more or less shut down transmission and keep it limited over a decent stretch of time, most of the planet is in the midst of a significant upheaval with normal everyday life, a distant memory. All kinds of new regulations put into place, removed, and then put into place in a slightly different shape once more, and warranted fears of infection leading to lifelong, still not fully understood chronic conditions and or death, overwhelming many people's desires to just get back to the way things were already. Within that context, many of us have been waiting with bated breath for news about when we can expect this thing to end, an ending that would almost certainly require a cure or a vaccine or both. What we've had on offer thus far unfortunately have primarily been a bunch of quack claims that don't hold up when formally tested a bunch of quack claims that have not been tested possibly because those who present them know that they are unreplicable and a bunch of theories about things that might work all of which have been in progress for seemingly ages but which have mostly just been going through the normal process for these sorts of things a process that typically takes many years And we're still a little less than a year into this pandemic, which tells us something about how much longer we might expect to be waiting. Less than a month ago, though, word started to creep out that we might have at least a couple of vaccines available well before the typical handful-of-years timeline. And both announced vaccines are predicated on the same, as-of-yet, unproven technology called mRNA, or messenger RNA a moniker that refers to the molecular delivery vehicles that transport genetic information from one place to another. The American pharmaceutical company, Pfizer, working with their German biotechnology company partner, BioNTech SE, was the first to announce that they had a functioning candidate vaccine on November 9th, followed by Moderna, an American biotech company, a week later. Both vaccine candidates... Have been shown to be about 95% efficacious. And the difference between efficacious and effective, by the way, is that efficacious typically refers to idealized lab settings, while effective means how well something works in the imperfect real world. So when I say efficacious here, what I mean is effective under lab conditions which is all we really know right now, because these vaccines are still being tested. So that in mind, if these vaccines continue to look good, they'll get authorization from various governmental drug oversight groups, though the FDA in the United States does tend to set the tone for many foreign bodies of a similar nature and they are scheduled to announce the results of their deliberation in December, at which point it'll be up to the Centers for Disease Control, or CDC, to decide whether or not they want to prioritize one or both of the vaccines for high-risk groups, and to figure out how the vaccines should be distributed from there. It's currently estimated that, in the U.S., about 40 million doses will be available by the end of 2020, if all goes well with the regulatory process and rollout which means 20 million people would be vaccinated since both of these vaccines require two doses to be effective. Both companies will also be spending a great deal of time and resources during this period and after, making sure they are ready to produce, store, and ship the vaccines, with Pfizer likely to have a bit more logistical trouble as their vaccine needs to be kept incredibly cold below negative 70 degrees Celsius, while Moderna's will require a comparably toasty, but still very cold, negative 20 degrees Celsius. Because its offering approaches the problem in a similar way, but the components are packaged in a different way within the vaccine itself, making them more heat tolerant as a consequence. The extreme cold required to keep these vaccines viable won't be a huge issue for many wealthier countries with reliable cold freezer infrastructure, but for much of the world it will be a substantial task, getting doses to where they need to be, and that would be true of a vaccine that only required one dose, but these require two, several weeks apart, which is another significant logistical problem. Pfizer typically waits until a drug is given the go-ahead by regulators before investing in distribution infrastructure. But due to the circumstances in this case, they've been building that infrastructure alongside the vaccine itself, an effort that's cost them about 2 billion US dollars in total thus far, and which has led to the introduction of what's being called a cool box, an outer carton with a reinforced internal lid which itself contains an inner box that holds about five trays of 1,000 doses apiece. And those trays are stacked atop each other, and then that pile of trays is topped with another box of dry ice. These containers should, if all goes according to plan, keep the vaccine doses viable for 10 days before the dry ice needs to be replaced. Though this component of their plan relies on the ability to handle these containers appropriately, both in terms of shipping on cargo planes and locally by cargo haulers and those administering the vaccines, which are weak points that they've attempted to address but which are seldom addressed perfectly ever for any type of product, much less something as relatively fragile, both physically and in terms of temperature, as this vaccine. The production of suitable vials may also become a bottleneck in this process, as manufacturing consistent, strong, affordable, tiny glass containers capable of holding this sort of vaccine, and one that's capable of being safely stored at those extremely low temperatures and being handled both during shipping and during application in clinical situations, that's not nothing. That's actually quite a big deal. As recently as 2012, up to a fifth of recalled injectable pharmaceuticals were recalled because of glass particles and dust that were shed by their tiny glass vial containers into the drug itself. Material science is just as vital to this process as transportation infrastructure. The design of the systems that make the distribution and injection of these drugs safe for those receiving them, and the economics that allow the companies which make them to do so while still adhering to all the incentives that exist for large-scale multinational corporations, the stuff that incentivizes them to commit these types of resources and effort to this type of product to begin with. Let's talk for a moment about the trials that were conducted that both led to the consideration of these vaccines as potential winners and from where those efficaciousness percentages were derived. The Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine candidates trial had 43,538 participants, and they waited until 170 people in that group were infected, which is pretty standard procedure for this type of trial. You get a group of people together, you set a number ahead of time for the number of people who will need to get infected before you then check. So they did that, and then they looked at how many of those 170 people had been given the vaccine versus how many were given the placebo. And they found that 162 of the 170 infected people in their test group were in the placebo group. So they had not received the vaccine versus 8 people of that 170 who had gotten sick who had received the vaccine. They also found no serious safety concerns as a result of being given the vaccine. About 3.8% of people reported some light fatigue, while about 2% reported minor headaches. Moderna's approach was similar, though the raw numbers were a little different. They had 30,000 participants, 95 of which were infected, and only 5 of those infections were in people who had received the vaccine, whereas 90 were in the placebo group. Both vaccines, if approved, would be the first messenger RNA-based vaccines to be approved for use. And both were developed in record time, and I mean that literally, as the previous most rapidly developed and approved record goes to the mumps vaccine, which was licensed in 1967 and took four years to develop. The average vaccine as of today takes 10 to 15 years to get from initial research to finished available product. Again, at least in part, because regulations have become more stringent. So the fact that these vaccines have come this far this fast, all in less than a year, is pretty mind-bending. And it tells us something about what we might expect in the future, if indeed they do achieve their potential. The testing phases are rightly taking a while, as we want to make sure that these vaccines work and will not cause more problems than they solve. But part of the caution here is related to the fact that this is a new approach to making vaccines, inserting pieces of messenger RNA into human cells, and in turn reprogramming them to produce antigens for the pathogen in question. So there's a chance that if this approach is shown to be both safe and effective, future uses of it will be even speedier to get out the door, as the fundamental theories and practices underpinning the vaccine will be better understood and pre-tested. We'll still need to test each specific use of it, of course, but we won't need to worry about the underlying concept being a dud. We'll know that portion of it works and how it works. It's notable that Moderna actually developed their vaccine within two months of having access to the genetic sequence of what's often called the spike protein that covers the surface of the coronavirus that causes COVID-19. Such information is available incredibly quickly these days with the basic genetic structure of COVID-19 hitting the internet after just a few days of it being identified in China. Thus, it's possible to imagine increasingly rapid responses to future would-be pandemics, allowing us to immunize huge swaths of the population around an outbreak, diffusing a bad situation before it can become a horrible and massively tragic one. Also notable is that vaccines based on different approaches seem to be just over the horizon as well. A British-Swedish pharmaceutical company, AstraZeneca, in partnership with the University of Oxford, recently announced that their recombinant vector vaccine, one of the other third-generation vaccine methods which involves taking chunks of different types of pathogen and recombining them in such a way that the injectable material is less harmful or even harmless, but still conveys the appropriate immune response to the recipient's body. They announced that it was between 70% and 90% efficacious after trials pointed them toward an unusual application schedule, giving half a dose and then a full dose instead of two full doses, and that boosted the demonstrable efficaciousness to 90%. And that 70% figure that's being promoted right now is an average of the new 90% level and the previous 60%-ish level that the vaccine was demonstrating using the two full doses application method. This vaccine is interesting in that if it makes it through the rest of the approval process, it would be far cheaper than the other two options, costing about $2.50 a dose compared to around $20 for both of the mRNA-based vaccines. And it could be transported and stored in normal refrigeration conditions, remaining viable for up to six months. Spokespeople at AstraZeneca have made clear that they don't see their vaccine as competition for the other vaccines in development but rather as complementary to them. The lower price and ease of storage and shipping make it more ideal for parts of the world where logistical and pricing issues would make the other options far less viable. And this is an important point to make. It's unlikely any single vaccine will be the one perfect option For this type of situation because of how widespread COVID-19 has become we will almost certainly need a handful or more vaccines if we want to stop the spread and contain or eliminate it in the coming years because it's unlikely that any single vaccine will serve absolutely everyone in every single circumstance and at a scale that is equal to the scale of the problem we face even as apparent solutions crest the horizon though questions remain about how things will play out in the coming months Who will receive these vaccines first, for instance? What should a government do if they certify and make available a safe and effective vaccine, but not enough people are willing to take it because of personal belief and or misinformation? How do we ensure that profit motives don't get in the way of good science in this and future cases of vaccine development? And what other experimental methods of immunity generation might we work with now so that we have them available as practical and quick-responding tools the next time a potential pandemic emerges. And beyond all that, how do we segue from where we are today to where we need to be, considering all the many and multifaceted changes we've experienced globally as a result of this shocking, sudden, and very harmful pandemic? that I'd like to recommend today is entitled Fathoms, The World in the Whale by Rebecca Giggs. I was turned on to this book by a concept that I came across, the concept of whale fall. And the idea of whale fall is that there are entire ecologies on the ocean floor that are almost entirely dependent on whales dying. And the whales' corpses then become the food, the energy resources, for various extremophiles and other types of creatures that exist down at these depths where essentially nothing else lives. And I thought that concept was kind of poetic and beautiful, and it's similar to other concepts that exist when old trees, for instance, die, and that death then gives birth to an entire new ecology of plants and animals. But we've learned quite a bit more about whales in particular and their role in their various ecosystems over the past several decades, and that's what this book is about. It's about whales and their interconnectedness, the richness of their lives, the lives that they live and the groups that they form, but also how we are influencing those lives and changing those ecosystems and what we might do to change some of the negative repercussions that we're having on those ecosystems and groups in the future. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Fathoms by Rebecca Giggs. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other podcast, Brain Lenses, wherever you get your podcasts, or at brainlenses.com. I've got a new project that I recently started that fits broadly under the header of news and news curation that you can check out if you like. You can find that at yesterdaysnewsletter.com. And if you're keen, you can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook, and at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram and such. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week.